Revelation chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let us pray. Father God, we come before your word this morning. We ask that you bless it, bless our hearing of it through the power of the Spirit, so that we might further delight in the one in whom John had the good fortune of seeing and whom you've allowed us to see as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The year is 1979. And a parish priest in a city in America has decided to send a letter of congratulations to a new president of a country on the world stage. The, the new president of this country uh, is so excited to receive this letter from the parish priest that he decides to send $200,000 to this priest's church. Then, shortly thereafter, he also sends an invitation for this parish priest to come out, to come visit him. And this parish priest being so excited about the generosity, how this seemingly little moment led to such a a remarkable series of events, reached out to his mayor and said, "Can can I bring something to this man? Can I, can I give him maybe, you know, like the key to the city? And so the mayor decided this is a great idea and decided to give this president the key to the story, the city. And at this point, it's, it's a nice little story, you know. Here's this little pastor, uh, priest, parish priest, and and through a series of events, his congregation was blessed, and, and then in response, the key to the city was given to a world leader. Good little story about diplomacy, right? Well, what I just described to you is how Saddam Hussein got the key to Detroit, Motor City. See, in 1980, Saddam Hussein received the key to Motor City, USA, Detroit. Why I begin there is because this portion of text we're in today, if you follow along, we'll have all of us ask ourselves, who is holding the key for us? 
Or maybe, if we're willing to be a little more honest, why are we still trying to hold the key? When we have things like idols in our lives, things we place as more important than God, we are in one sense giving away the keys to the city, to the homes we live in, to the lives we live, to things, to ideas, to patterns in life that shouldn't have the key. So is the Lord, your God, really your key holder this morning? The Lord is not content also to hold just some of the keys. He wants all the keys. You know, every, every home has that junk room. Uh, I, I may have, I'll, I'll leave it anonymous, I may have been in a home yesterday to help somebody out and uh, I might have accidentally, they told me to go get something and I went and get something and I had to go through a room that was the junk room of the house, piled high and piled deep. Uh, but I need to get what was on the other side. We all have those rooms. Sometimes we at the Park household have several of those rooms. Uh, but, you know, God is the God who wants to hold the keys to all the rooms. But before we really focus in on that question, let's backtrack a little bit. Two weeks ago, we saw that John was at a low point in his life, outwardly speaking, exiled to Patmos, which every major theologian of the early church made clear that Patmos was not what it is today, not one of those islands where you get those beverages with umbrellas in them, but it was a prison colony. It was... And, and John's, so he is exiled here. But we saw in two weeks ago how John found strength in being a part of the family of God and, and understood that tribulation is good for the family of God. So John had been exiled because he refused to bow down, refused to fall down before Caesar's commands. Then last week we witnessed how in this dark hour of the apostle's life, God met John there in Patmos with a vision of him. And by the way, this isn't a unique idea in Scripture. This is actually a pattern of Scripture. Jacob in Genesis chapter 35 verse 6 saw God at Bethel after being basically in exile. When did Moses see God in the burning bush? When he was in exile. When did Elijah hear the still small voice of God when he was so depressed and so angry at how the events of of the northern kingdom were unfolding that he ran to Sinai, ran away from God, and God met him there in exile? When did Ezekiel see the glory of God when he was in exile in Babylon along the riverbed? When did Daniel see the Ancient of Days so much of what this description of John is, is referring to and, and has parallels with. It was in exile. Are you noticing a trend? The Bible wants you to notice the trend. We worship a God who when we're feeling alone, when we're feeling cast off, that's when he comes out to meet his people. And what was the vision of God that John saw in exile? It was, as we described last week, a a God full of wisdom and purity. A God who is prophet, priest, and king. A God who is regal. And a God who sees all. And a God 
as we covered last week, who endured the purifying agony of the fire of Calvary, not surrendering in the slightest. He was a, like a Bronze Age warrior, a God whose voice is like a great many raging waters and who holds the heavens and the angelic messengers in his hands while he's in the presence of the church. So much of the description last week showed a God that was powerful but also ready to make war. A God who ultimately cuts through the sword of his mouth two ways. Either we are his enemies and set to war and contend with the Almighty, or the word of his mouth will drive us into worship. To drive us to worship the one who has the face that shines brighter than the sun itself. And that's where we stopped. John seeing this vision of the Lord ready for battle. What does John do seeing God like that? After John has beheld the face of God, the, the face of Jesus, what does he do? He does a very routine thing found throughout Scripture. Something that Joshua once did in Joshua 5, verse 14. Something Isaiah once did in chapter 6 of his book. Ezekiel in chapter 1, verse 28 of his book. Daniel, twice in his book, once in 8 and once in 10. Some of the disciples, including John, did at the mountain of transfiguration in Matthew 17. And Paul is also recorded doing in Acts chapter 26, verse 14. What they all do when they came face to face with him? They fell down as though dead. And some collective mixture of being terrified and yet a reverent fear of awestruck wonder. Remember, John, John is a Jew. A people who grew up not saying the name of Yahweh. Where there was a legitimate biblical fear established by passages such as Exodus chapter 19 verse 21, Exodus 33 verse 20, and even Gideon's encounter with the angel in Judges 6, verses 22 and 23, we can see this. God's word made clear to the Old Testament believer, you don't get to see my face and just continue on living as you once were. That scriptural tension, that idea, is an important one to consider this morning. It made me even think of this week about our first parents in the garden, Adam and Eve. They had been promised death. They had been promised death. So what do they do immediately after they fell into sin? They, they go into hiding. They make clothing. They try to hide. But what does God do? He meets them in their exile. Where are you? Not because he doesn't know where they are. But he is the God who loves to offer mercy and grace and rescue those who are exiled from him. The story is at the very beginning. This pattern of God rescuing people. I I just was thinking this week of how frightening and utterly terrifying Adam and Eve must have been as they heard him coming thinking, oh, he's going to see us with his face and he's going to strike us down dead at this very moment. And yet God meets us in such moments and he gives us grace This is a long way of saying to fall in the hands of the living God is a terrifying experience at first. Before the Lord saved me, really the the first two the two weeks leading up to that moment where he, he shined a new light on 
Scripture and, and through the power of His Holy Spirit, God allowed me just to sit in the utter wickedness and, and dread of the day of when I would go before Him. Because I had done enough that I was most worthy to be judged. And He terrified me. So many Christians fall into the trap of having an underwhelming view of who God is. They always think of God as kind of this trite, friendly figure, almost Mr. Rogers-esque, you know? But this illustration here doesn't show us Mr. Rogers. It shows us that we shouldn't be so cavalier to ignore who God is when we consider Him. And And when we consider the primary things we think and believe and say and do in the course and matter of this life. John had a vision of a God whose word is a two-edged sword. So it's either going to cut you down into worship of him or it's going to cut you down because you are foolish enough to make war with God. Appreciate the fact that also uh, John had already stood before Roman and Jewish powers, heads of state who threatened his life, cast him into burning oil, uh, hot oil, battered, bruised, beaten, jailed, and even exiled him. He also was the only disciple. While he did also flee on the night Jesus was betrayed, he came back. He's the only disciple who came back to watch the agony of the cross. That took real courage to do, to watch Jesus die on the cross knowing the ruling authorities would have had little problem with putting one more of his kind up on the cross. And through it all, John was basically able to stand. And now John falls dead. The John who had a life that stood for Christ in the presence of Christ symbolically dies before him. Have you died before Christ yet? Have you reached the point where you realize the foolishness of how you live your life in utter resistance towards Him? Have you collapsed before Him trembling? You know, there is a reality as Christians we often tend to ignore, but it doesn't make that Christian Christmas card or most sermons. But there is an aspect of the Christian worldview that says, I so reverently, and I stress that word reverently, I so reverently fear God Like Job says in chapter 23 in one sense, that we can say, I'm terrified of his presence when I consider it all. And yet God can still use that fear for something glorious. What can come from fearing God, the living God like that? I know there's someone here thinking probably right now, why would I want to think about God like that? Why would I want to worship a God who when I first see Him, He strikes me down dead with reverent fear for Him? And I can tell you why. The Christian life in part begins with such a fear taking hold of us that once we see the magnitude, the greatness, the grandeur of His glory, the other things in the world no longer seem so frightening. Do you remember what Jesus once warned people to do in the Gospels? Warned people in the Gospels? Don't fear the ones who can take your life in this life. Fear rather the one who has the power to cast you into hell in the life to come. God wants you to understand that both He and His Word are not to be trifled with. So let's stop trifling with it and with Him and pretending God's not worthy of reverent fear. 
lot of people who claim to be Christians don't really have any fear of God. They've convinced themselves they believe in him, and yet really what they've done is created that Mr. Rogers God in their own image. Do not fool yourself into believing in a false God because it's more comfortable for you. Have you been brought to the place where you can say, because I fear God, I listen to his word and fall down dead before it. No longer trying to create a God in my own image. Rather, I allow him to speak for himself in his word. You know, over the course of the last 19 months, um, both Bruce and myself have received a lot of undue compliments. Compliments of keeping the church open. Just had somebody reach out from a different church and asking us if we would teach the Hot Topics series at their church. Compliments of... uh, just continuing on with the pattern of worship. And really, none of that should be complimented. The reality is, I fear God more than man. And I don't have the right to hand the heavenly things to the world. Because I fear God more than man. And I'm confident Bruce would say that as well. Whatever the world can throw at us, fear God more than man. And that doesn't mean God's word is silent on how to worship in this moment in history. Uh, For instance, I know people who are not here today because there's illness in their house. They've stayed home. The defense... Diefenbachs here last week. There was illness in their house. They were not here. I think the week before that, it was the Stikes. Yeah, God's Word says that. If you're sick, stay home. So thank you for doing that. But we don't hand over heavenly things to human power. It's not ours to hand over. We, we don't hold the keys. He holds the keys. We don't have the right to hand over heavenly decisions to earthly rulers. God has granted our government officials, especially in this country, most especially in this country, an awesome amount of power for the time being. And one day he will take it all away. And thankfully so, because neither party, in the grand scheme of things, has done a job worthy of something I want to live in and under for all time and eternity. And he will evaluate what they did with such temporary power. But you know what they have no power over? Over our worship, over our heavenly things. And we are to fear God more than them. We, are, we need to be constantly falling before God with reverent fear, saying, Yes, Lord, while I'm scared, while I don't know why you brought me into this time and place in history, this point in time, I fear you more than anything else. And I fall down dead before you, because I know before you I cannot stand. And you know what the kind of God we worship does in such moments? We can see in verse 17 what he does. We have a God who lays his hand upon us, like he did for John here. And he tells us, fear not. Fear not. 
fear not. If you allow yourself truly to die before Christ and His Word, submitting to His authority over all things, He then grabs a hold of you and begins to remove your fear. Fear not. I can't help but think of the judgment passage in Matthew that we covered about a year ago. And the goats, what do they do? They go before the Lord and they try to stand in their own strength. God, didn't I, Lord, didn't I do all these great things? Didn't I do magnificent works? They have no fear of God in their eyes. And so he casts them into the exile of exiles and says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Need more fear of God. Let me also point something else about this text. Surely the Apostle John would have realized in this moment. I already kind of alluded to it earlier. The Apostle John, when he was the disciple, he first was struck down dead in the mountain of transfiguration, hearing the voice of the Father. And by the way, when he heard the voice of the Father, what brought him the calming touch? It was the voice of Jesus, the touch of Christ. And now here we see our one God in three persons, the same authority that the Father has, Christ has. Christ's voice now is the voice that strikes him down dead. And yet Christ's word also brings him new life. The Bible is crystal clear for those who have eyes to see it. Jesus is very God very God, and he cast out fear for his followers. And Jesus says of himself, I am the first and the last. Another parallel to what the Father's words were, and as the Greek showed when we looked at verse 8 of Revelation of chapter 1. But now Jesus is saying he's the first and the last. And I want you to look at that word last. That word last in the Greek is the word eschatos, where we get the the word eschatology from, which is really the study of the last things. Why do people love Revelation? Because it's the study of the eschatos, the last things. But don't miss the fact that Jesus says, he's the last thing. He's the eschatos. That basically in Jesus we find an end in him that never ends. It's an end that is enduring and everlasting and glorious and good. In one sense, we could argue that this is the summary of the book of Revelation. If you've found your end in Christ, you need not worry about anything else. And also part of what he is doing here, and he hints as he continues to speak, the God-man, Jesus hints to us, I know the trials you face and worry about because I faced them myself. He's the God who knows pain. He's the God who knows suffering. He knows rejection. He knows being hated. He knows being made to flee. He knows being cast out by the angry mobs. He knows when rulers come down wickedly upon him. He knows death. He knows eternal life. He knows it all. And yet there is Jesus in verse 18 basically saying to both John and those who read and believe in his word after him, while things like death might seem a threat to you or being imprisoned or exiled or being rejected and shunned, don't forget who I am. Never forget who I am. 
I was the God who was taken to the greatest exile of all, to the depths of hell upon the cross of Calvary. And what happened next? Death could not contain me. Life is my ultimate end. And it can't contain you either because you have me. I am the end of fear of such things. And so Jesus is saying, remember, death is no threat to you because I am your Lord. I am the living one, he says, and I have died. And I am alive forevermore. And then Jesus says, I have the keys. On Friday, we were at the Stikes house in the evening, both the the, the kids and the, the win- uh, my wife, for the women and children, they kind of gathered around the fire. Then we had men's night. And uh, I almost got burned with this phrase. Uh, Caitlin, and, Caitlin knows what I'm referring to. But basically, it came time to go, you know? And when it comes time to go, you got it, you're going to the car. What's kind of a popular expression that we have at that point? I've got the keys. We're going, right? I'm the key holder. You need to listen to me. And I, and I had pointed out, and I, I had my two youngest there, and they're yeah, sitting with Lydia, those Russian spies over there. But um, they, uh, they didn't want to get going, right? And so I say, hey, I got the keys. We're going soon. The kids didn't pick up on the fact that I was actually threatening to leave them at the Stikes house, which they would have wanted all along anyways. They, they, but they took that threat and understood, all right, we've got to get packed up. We've got to go. Jesus holds the keys. He's reminding us of that. He doesn't just hold a key. He holds all the keys that we ever have to worry about. He holds the keys of life and death, of all these things. And because He has the keys, the keys to the heavenly city, the keys to to death, to, to hell itself, all these things. It's good news that he grabs a hold of us in that exile. He, will, he promises that he will grab a hold of us when we get exiled into death itself. And when he grabs a hold of us, life will spring forth. And eternal peace will break out forever. So we need not fear. You know, in the last hundred years, the world has endured the most murderous governments of world history, the greatest tyrants in human history, the largest mass murderers who came into the world under the skies of secular humanism, basically that a godless government established with the thoughts of humanity rather than a foundation in God could be designed in such a way that it would sow better conditions in life that we never needed God again. We wouldn't need God in the world anymore. We could create better. And what followed was the greatest purge of human life in world history. And it's still going on. Disney films movies like Mulan next to concentration camps in western China. And why do I bring this up? Certainly the power that most impacted the United States over the last hundred years at the worldwide level was the Soviet Union. Many of our youth might not be aware of that reality, but the USSR always entered into public and political thinking during the Cold War. 
And I had to be reminded this week uh, when reading a pastor, Richard Phillips, of a story. But do you remember what the first spark was that led to the tearing down of a wall that separated east from west? By the way, do you even, before I even get there, do you know what the wall was called on the Soviet side when they started justifying putting it up? They called it the anti-fascist wall. We have to do this, the Soviets said, because while it seems awful and extreme, we have to save ourselves from the fascists on the other side of the fence. Oh, the power of silly rhetoric over people's minds. But that's how they got support for it in the Soviet Union. They called the British and American supported side of West Germany fascist. And who doesn't want to be anti-fascist? I want to be anti-fascist. But you know what sparked the original breakdown of that wall? The first country that tore down that dividing wall of, of hostility was Hungary. It was, this, it was actually a spark lit by a reformed church in Hungary. You heard that right. A reformed church in Hungary. And uh, Timo Saura. I probably said that wrong. It sounded kind of Japanese when I said it. But they caught word that the communists were going to arrest their pastor. See, their pastor had been speaking out about how godless communism could never bring them peace. And the Soviets didn't like that. It sounded too fascist, maybe. Um, And so the church, catching wind of this, decided to surround his apartment with a constant candlelight vigil. And other people joined in. And eventually the city joined in. And then eventually the country joined in. And then country after country after country joined in. And then the walls started to be ripped down. pastor's name was actually Laszlo Tokes. And he he actually ended up serving in the EU as a representative of Hungary. Their defiance of evil sparked a citywide protest that spread to the wall, to that dividing wall of hostility being torn down. And remarking on the series of events that caused the wall to come down, American Rear Admiral Marmaduke Bain said of the event at the time, stated the following, U.S. intelligence officers were surprised by these events, and I'm quoting him when I say this, because of their blindness to the importance of God and religion. And the USR basically was the implication. That the US intelligence had no idea the wall was about to come down because of their blindness to the importance of God and religion. What did the rear admiral miss? And he's basically saying we had no idea a small reformed Christian church in a tiny town in Hungary could lead to such a domino effect. He missed that the keys of history, the keys everywhere from Motor City, Detroit, to the farthest reaches of creation, are the keys of our Lord and Savior. The one who, when you see him, will cut you one of two ways. He'll either cause you to fall down dead before him in reverence and awe until he comes alongside of you and grabs a hold of you and whispers, Fear not, my child. Fear not, my brother, my sister. Or he will one day use the sharp end of the blade against those who remain his enemy. Do not build a wall of hostility 
between yourself and him. Or try to maintain it by not allowing his word to be your ultimate guiding light. It does no good to claim no such wall exists when you still resist his word. Make peace. Please, make peace with him, with the key holder. Do not build yourself up to be your own God and live by your own values. But come before him and receive a reason to no longer fear whatever the world may throw at us. For he, the key holder, is both first and last for those who love him reverently with fear and awe. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, help us to appreciate John's vision. Help us to appreciate that you hold the keys. Help us to fear you more than the world. Allow us to continue to die before you so that you might insert a new heart in us to bring greater life to us. That's this in Jesus' name. Amen.